Coming up on today's show, 17 Canadians die every day from opioid overdose in 2020. Some interesting work coming out of the Royal Terrell Museum. New research shedding light on the feeding behavior of the mighty Tyrannosaurus Rex. Turns out they're a completely different animal as they go through their life cycle. And you know him and you love him. His name's Marcel, or Golden Eagle. He'll join us and talk about residential schools and how we can move forward. I think when we talk about this opioid epidemic, obviously the attempts that we've made to try and control it or stem it or save lives have failed miserably at every level of government, uh, pretty much right across the country. Maybe some are having slightly more success, but overall, uh, we're still seeing Canadians lose their lives at an alarming rate each and every single day. Um, the discussion has become largely political in a lot of circles and a lot very ideological. Um, so let's get rid of that for the next half hour and let's talk science. Let's talk medicine. Let's talk about what we know in terms of evidence-based approaches, what works, what doesn't. We're going to start our discussion with Dr. Meldon Cahan, who is the Medical Director of Substance Use Service at the Women's College Hospital in Toronto. Uh, his list of credentials goes on much, much, much longer than that. I could sit here and fill the next half hour telling you about all his credentials, but um, Dr. Cahan, s- suffice to say you are recognized as one of the foremost experts in addiction medicine, certainly in country, in our country, if not around the world. So I, I really appreciate you taking some time with us this morning. Thank you. I appreciate that. When we talk about um, opioids, the overdose epidemic, um, there is robust science around this, right? It's not like we're operating in the dark. There is evidence-based treatment that we know about, and there is science surrounding this, correct? Absolutely. Uh, By far the most evidence-based treatment is opiate agonist treatment, and that uses medications called methadone or buprenorphine. So... These two medications are both opiates. Uh, they're they're uh, very different, though, than, than heroin in that they uh, uh, take a long time to act and they last the whole day. So when given in the appropriate dose to someone who uses opiates, they don't get euphoric, they don't get high, uh, they just feel normal. It relieves withdrawal symptoms and cravings. And the two medications are dispensed in a controlled way so they, they can't inject them and they can't sell them, uh, they can't uh, uh, divert them, they just uh, take them every day, they feel normal and they can get on with their lives. There's, this has been the most studied uh, treatment probably of any kind anywhere. Um, multiple randomized trials, uh, cohort studies involving tens of thousands of patients, and it does work. It reduces overdose death, uh, and it keeps people functioning and doing well, keeps them out of prison and keeps them out of hospital. Okay, so the science says that the agonist approach is, is probably our best way to go. Now, let's talk about some of the other things that we constantly hear about. Um, safe supply is something that has really become a big topic of discussion, uh, and basically that is providing not the medications you're talking about, but, um, you know, hydromorphone or, or something like that to addicts, correct? What, what, what does the science tell us about safe supply? Right. Well, the idea of safe supply is that uh, people are using fentanyl. Fentanyl is highly potent. It's lethal. It's often contaminated with drugs. So safe supply says, well, let's give people a safe pharmaceutical alternative. We know uh, its potency. Uh, They could use this instead of that. Uh, And uh, really, uh, the the problem with the safe supply approach is not hydromorphone per se. 
Hydromorphone can work just as well as methadone or, or buprenorphine uh, if it's uh, administered in the same way, that is, supervised dosing. The problem is that hydro, uh, safe supply practitioners are giving large amounts of these tablets to patients uh, to take home, uh, often with instructions on how to inject them. Hmm. And this, at least the evidence suggests that this is harmful. It's harmful to the patient. It's harmful to the public. So the patient is given maybe uh, 30 tablets of 8-milligram hydromorphone tablets to take home. Maybe they go to the pharmacy to pick it up uh, once a day. Maybe they go once a week. Uh, They uh, inject it at home. They don't use serial technique, even if they've been instructed on it. They get uh, serious bacterial infections, uh, such as endocarditis or sepsis or bone infections, uh, or uh, they sell their tablets and they sell them to others so that they're expanding the illicit drug market. They're giving uh, it or selling it to their neighbors, to their cousin, to people they meet at the pharmacy. Uh, So it gets out there in the street. And this is so harmful. Uh, It's making the drug crisis worse, not better. Um, safe consumption sites. Where does the science fall on that one? I think that they're a good idea, generally speaking. Uh, I think that it's uh, the, the, there is some evidence that people who inject in a safe consumption site are not going to die because there are people around to revive them. Right. It is an opportunity also to connect them with, uh, you know, with health care, with opiate agonist treatment if they're interested. Yeah, I think generally speaking, supervised consumption sites are a good idea. Okay, and uh, in our province, the government is focusing primarily on treatment, which I think nobody would disagree is is a great idea, adding treatment um, options and beds and things like that. That's something that's needed. Um, but do all these have to work together? There, there has to be a continuum. Uh, There really does. I mean, uh, people who are are injecting and they don't want to stop injecting and they're not interested in treatment, absolutely they need uh, access to take-home naloxone and supervised consumption sites. When they're, if and when they're ready to stop, and and often that just happens suddenly, they run out of money or their drug dealer is in jail or they want to visit their parents or they're feeling sick or they're in hospital, then they should be offered opiate agonist treatment immediately. And uh, uh, that is the the best way we need to make opiate agonist treatment widely available, flexible. Uh, We also need to have protocols that are uh, able to cope with fentanyl because fentanyl is so potent that our standard dosing is not working as well as it should. So we need to be able to give methadone in combination with morphine, uh, for example, as a way of uh, relieving the withdrawal symptoms of cravings that patients get with fentanyl. Are there any jurisdictions that we can look to that have done this well and track what they've done and uh, employ it in our country? Uh, I, I think that um, there, this fentanyl crisis is so new yeah. uh, that I think it, and so deadly that it has taken the public and the uh, addiction profession and the healthcare professionals has been totally shocking. It's like for an infectious disease doctor, it's like coronavirus. It's like something that comes along that we don't have any vaccine for or any treatment for. And there's been a lot of innovation, a lot of good things that have come out. I mean, even in Alberta, you're uh, the 
virtual opiate dependency program is a brilliant idea where patients can call or people or families can call uh, at any time and get advice over the phone. And if they are interested in starting uh, opiate agonist treatment, they talk with a uh, prescriber, a nurse practitioner or a physician uh, right away that day, and they can be fast to prescription near them to get going on it right away. That's the kind of innovative solutions we need. But I think we do need to have uh, we need to approach this crisis the same way that we approach coronavirus, that is, with a massive public health effort. I believe that every hospital, every emergency department, every primary care, every withdrawal management center, every prison should be able to offer uh, right away on-site opiate agonist treatment, uh, along with take-home naloxone and supervised consumption sites and all the other innovations that are there. Uh, and uh, we need also to have uh, prescribers, opiate prescribers, do a better job. Right now, there's a panic in the land about opiates, and you're getting family doctors cutting people off opiates mm-hmm. uh, and causing them to go into withdrawal and turn to the street. But we need uh, to have a, uh, a much stronger, more robust public health effort than we have to date. Dr. Kahn, I can't thank you enough for your time and your expertise and your insight. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you very much. That is Dr. Meldon Kahan, a foremost uh, leading expert around addiction medicine. And we have another one on hold. We're going to chat with Dr. Rob Tangay when we come back right after this. Continuing our discussion now around the opioid epidemic and what we can do to try and address it and the science behind what we know about opioid addiction and overdose. Joining us now, we have Dr. Robert Tangay, uh, who is another guy with a list of credentials that could fill the rest of this hour. Suffice to say, he's a psychiatrist. He is a professor at the University of Calgary in the Department of Psychiatry. He's on the Canadian Society of Addiction Medicine, the International Society of Addiction Medicine, a foremost leading expert when it comes to addiction. Dr. Tangay, thank you for joining us today. I appreciate it. Well, Shay, thanks for having me. Uh, really an honor to follow up after Mel uh, and excited to chat. Yeah, when we uh, talk with Dr. Khan, it sounds to me like we're, we sort of get, I don't know if you want to call it silos, but we sort of get focused on one thing or the other as being the answer to this. And it sounds to me like it's going to take a much more fulsome approach and all of these things need to be involved. Yeah, without question. I I think the only way we're going to get through this is if everybody's uh, all hands on deck. And as mentioned by by Mel, you know, looking at this like we look at COVID, I mean, it's fascinating to see the immediate response uh, that we had to COVID. Uh, and yet we're seeing massive loss of life of our youth uh, to overdoses and deaths, and we haven't seen that same kind of response, that same kind of uh, uh, funding and putting uh, money where mouth is. Yeah, so, okay, let's let's put you in charge here. Are you and the scientists and all these other guys who are sort of taking a look at this and saying, you know what, there's some evidence over here that we can look at. Um, what do we do? What, what are we doing wrong? What should we be doing? What does the science and the evidence tell us we should be doing? Well, you know, I think if we look at what's been done so far, we've seen uh, a lot of coordinated uh, approaches. Uh, in Alberta, as uh, Mel had mentioned, our virtual ODP is world-leading. Uh, our responses in the emergency departments where anybody who's struggling with uh, opioid addiction can go to an urgent care or emergency department and get started on uh, buprenorphine, naloxone, or suboxone. Uh, as mentioned by Mel, one of the uh, 
gold standard treatments for opioid use disorder uh, are uh, programs that are uh, involved across the province at reducing harm uh, have been rolled out over the last several years to try to help those individuals and now we're seeing a robust uh, increase in funding in Alberta towards treatment. Mm -hmm. Now what we got to do is put all those things together. And right now, it's fairly uncoordinated where you have, you know, this not-for-profit doing its uh, supervised consumption services with no physicians, uh, no prescribing, uh, no therapy, no treatment. Um, and you've got, you know, this recovery center uh, that's the same way, no prescribing, no physicians. And so, you know, there's this artificial divide that a lot of people are talking about of harm reduction versus recovery capitalists. Uh, it's all artificial. And the reality is we're all here trying to help the same people uh, in a continuum of care, as, as was mentioned. And yeah. that is the most important thing, a pathway for people to start where they access the system and work their way across the system into treatment, where treatment includes those opioid agonist treatments that are the gold standard. Well, Doc, it seems so obvious, right? I mean, a safe consumption site isn't going to help somebody who's in treatment, and a treatment facility isn't going to help somebody who's still out there on the street actively using and needs a safe consumption site. So you need to have a start and an end. They're not, it, every case will be different. You know, the treatment of addiction is a, is really a spectrum, and that spectrum starts at harm, uh, reducing the harm and introducing someone to medications that will reduce their risk of dying um, and working along a continuum to helping somebody taper off those same medications after doing trauma therapy, going through their mental health pieces, going through addiction counseling, and... Uh, uh, really, you know, getting their lives back and starting uh, to to feel a sense of of uh, purpose and meaning, uh, and as they get to that point, helping them get off of those same medications. But you know, in addiction medicine, we start at the first part of the continuum of just building a relationship and providing medications that will reduce their risk of death, and moving with them along their continuum, their pathway uh, to healing and wellness. You know, Doc, and we're getting some texts from listeners saying, you know, by supplying these medications, you're just enabling them. You're just helping them. And I think uh, people need to understand that you have to stop. I mean, those, they will find those drugs no matter what they have to, or they get sick. You know, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a compulsion that they can't control. That's the whole point. So if you can remove that, now you open the doors to all kinds of other opportunities. Yeah, so it's, it's a great comment, and, and we hear this a lot of, look, you know, I uh, pulled up my boots and I quit using whatever. Yeah. Opioids are a very different process in the addiction area. Now, addiction is a, a mental health disorder. It's something that hijacks the brain, but it's usually got roots, and those roots are in trauma and mental health. Uh, the opioids, the physiology of the opioids, look, I, I've worked uh, for the last several years helping chronic pain patients who no longer have pain or acute pain patients whose pain is resolved stop using opioids, not because they're, you know, quote-unquote addicted, but because of the dependency yeah. and the physiology of the drug. It is very hard to stop using it. 
And so, you know, having these medications like Suboxone or Methadone, which help people stabilize the physiology of the addiction, and then we have to work with them through the psychosocial and spiritual aspects of treatment, and then look at uh, slowly tapering them, uh, with many of them coming to discontinuation after a full uh, course of treatment. But again, if that spectrum, that pathway, that continuum of care is fractured and there's holes in it, where, you know, one group is saying, oh, no, all we do is allow people to use drugs here, we don't do treatment. And another group says, you know, if they relapse in any way, we're kicking them out and we're no longer working with them. There is the big fractures that we need to fix and where everybody is working in a continuum and working together. And starting that continuum, yeah. Uh, Doc, I wish we had a lot more time, but we'll do this again because I think there's a lot more we can get into, but I really appreciate your time this morning. Absolutely. Thanks for having me and look forward to it. You bet. Thanks very much. Thanks, Shay. That, that is Dr. Robert Tange, who is um, with the Canadian Society of Addiction Medicine and a professor and a psychiatrist down in Calgary. It's that time of the week. Um, as you know, on Fridays, we try and get into some of the, uh, I don't know, geeky, maybe interesting, sciencey stuff. I love it. I, I, I can't get enough of it. Um, what we're going to talk about in the next half hour, we've got a couple on the go. Um, you know, we try and drag you off the beaten path of the news, the news, the news, and uh, get into some of the interesting stuff that's going on, well, in the universe. Uh, coming up a little bit later, we're going to talk about Venus. Uh, some pretty interesting discoveries about what goes on on that planet. But right now, we're going to come a lot closer to home, right here in the province of Alberta, and we're going to talk about the king of the dinosaurs, Tyrannosaurus rex. Some interesting, really interesting news this week about the T-Rex. And joining us to walk us through it all, we have Francois Therrien joining us now. Francois is the curator of dinosaur paleoecology at the Royal Terrell Museum in Drumhill, Alberta. Um, Francois, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. This is some very, very cool research. Basically, you guys have been doing some work examining the life cycle of the T-Rex, if I have this right, and you've determined basically that they're almost a completely different animal um, from the time they, when they're born to when they become what we all know as, you know, the king of the dinosaur world, Right. Yes, exactly. When you mention T-Rex or Tyrannosaurs, the bigger group of animals that includes T-Rex and its close relatives, most people have that picture in their minds of that big lumbering beast that has a powerful bite that can pulverize bones. Yeah. But, but, but the truth is that yet dinosaurs are reptiles, so they had to hatch out of an egg. So they started at very small body size, and then they just had to, during their lifespan, increase in body size until they reached that adult morphotype, that adult picture that we have of what di- a dinosaur looked like. But the, the young individuals, the juveniles, they were totally different animals. They looked very different. They were very lightly built. They were very swift, very rapid. They were runners that looked totally different 
from uh, the adult counterparts, and they also, as we discovered in our study, actually fed differently. They prayed differently, and they, uh, they, they actually had a bite that was much weaker than that of adults. So the young ones were not just scaled-down versions of the big, mighty T-Rex. They were animals, distinct animals in their own, uh, in their own way. When we talk about um, tyrannosaurs, how, what is that life cycle and how long does it take for them to grow into the monsters we all know and love? Well, here in Alberta, we are really lucky. We have such a great fossil record for dinosaurs and for tyrannosaurs in particular. Not only do we have five different species of tyrannosaurs found in the province, but we have lots and lots of individuals for these different species that actually these individuals, these fossils, represent the full spectrum of the life cycle of dinosaurs. We have the smallest individuals that are about three, four years of age, and then we have basically animals that basically died at different growth stages along the way. So for one species known from the Dinosaur Provincial Park area near Brooks uh, called Gorgosaurus, we have 26 individuals that cover the full spectrum from three years old to sometime in their 20s when they reach adulthood. And another species called Albertosaurus, more famous from the the Edmonton area, but also the Drumheller area, Uh, there we have 13 individuals that actually fill that spectrum. So by studying those, those jaws, we're able to see that up to the age of about 11 years of age, these uh, young tyrannosaurs were very typical theropods. They looked a lot like smaller versions of other theropods, like the raptors, okay. uh, Velociraptor, Allosaurus. So they seem to have been doing the same type of things. Their teeth were very blade-like, very narrow, very sharp, and their bites were relatively weak. Relatively speaking, we're talking about a three-year-old tyrannosaur probably had a bite force about 10% that of an alligator, whereas at 11, uh, they had a bite force that was about on par with uh, an alligator. But then at 11, that's when we have the big transition. Then their teeth start becoming much more uh, robust. They swell up. They become uh, what we call incrustate, which is basically a very fat version of a steak knife, if you want. And their bite force just start increasing exponentially becoming super strong up to the point where by the time they reach uh, adulthood their bite force is eight times that of an alligator and for t-rex we're talking about bite force 15 times that of an alligator so they undergo dramatic changes when they hit the 11 year old mark and uh, unreal so you can you can tell just by their their bite force and the shape and and structure of their teeth what they were doing, and basically, I mean, we, we know they're predators throughout their lifespan, but you can, it changes the way that they, they feed, they prey, they hunt, all of those things based on their structure, I guess, right? Yes, exactly. You can see that basically because the teeth and young individuals are very blade-like, those teeth are very similar to those of Komodo dragons, which are animals that just slash at their predators. Those teeth are just like steak knives. They're just for slashing through flesh. But when you get at 11 years old, then the teeth becomes much more, much more robust. They're fatter. They're designed for actually sustaining a lot of, uh, of twisting stresses when they bite onto their prey, but also uh, stresses associated when these animals try to crush through bones because their bite force becomes so powerful that these animals are capable of 
uh, crushing through bones. So just by looking at yeah, the, the shape of the teeth and also the, the proportions of the jaws and applying some uh, biomechanical or engineering principles to calculate uh, uh, bite force values, then you can actually infer what were the changes uh, that happened during the lifespan of a, of a tyrannosaur and realize that, yeah, they're not just the small ones are not just, yes, yeah, scaled-down versions, right. mini-me versions of T-Rex. <laughs> they're actually totally different animals that fill different roles in their ecosystems. So you say they're full-grown adults by their 20s. How long do they live? How long does uh, a T-Rex live? Yeah, well, tyrannosaur, well, most dinosaurs, you can actually tell their ages. If you cut their bones, you can see there's growth rings, just like in a tree, okay. uh, inside the bones of dinosaurs. So you can get a rough estimate of how old the, uh, the dinosaurs were. So for T-Rex itself, we have, yeah, the, the largest animals seem to have been in the 28 to 30 year of age at okay. the time of their death. For the other ones that I studied, Gorgosaurus and Albertosaurus, this, at least so far, the evidence we have, they seem to have been maybe have died a little bit at a younger age, maybe in the mid-20s. But uh, yeah, that's a new line of research that started probably in the last 15 years or so that basically allows us to finally start answering, asking questions about how old and or how fast these uh, dinosaurs grew. Okay, I'm going to drag you into a really stupid discussion here, if you don't mind. We're having a big fight, uh, me and my team here, um, about T-Rexes. Um, I'm, I'm the only one who seems to think that he could win in a fight against any other dinosaur that we know of. All my producers are saying, no, 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 there's a dinosaur out there that could beat a T-Rex in a fight. Is there, or are they the ultimate dinosaur uh you would be right if you'd put <laughs> money on that bet you would have won uh, i've done a good comparison yeah looking at yeah, t-rex versus another giant dinosaur that was actually even bigger than t-rex t-rex uh, an adult t-rex could reach uh, could reach about 12 meters in length there's a species from south america called gigantosaurus which means giant reptile which is not very uh, original as a name but <laughs> <laughs> that's what the scientists came up with but that animal could reach 13 to 14 meters in length. Well, that, that giant dinosaur from South America, Gigantosaurus, had a bite force about four times that of a modern alligator. If you compare T-Rex, T-Rex is at 15 times that of an alligator. And the reason why even a, an animal bigger than T-Rex has a weaker bite is I think it's because these animals hunted differently. T the, all Tyrannosaurus people are familiar with that have very short forelimbs. They don't are, they are incapable of using their hands to grasp prey. So they have to do all their, their killing work, all the dirty work has to be done with their jaws, with their teeth. So that's why they had to evolve super powerful bites so that they could kill their prey because they couldn't rely sure. on anything else to take down their prey. Whereas Gigantosaurus still had long uh, forelimbs, hands with three fingers, with very big claws. So it could have used its forelimbs to try to, to kill a prey, whereas T Rex had no other choice but to rely on its bite to take down its prey. Makes perfect sense. I, I, I appreciate your time so much, Francois. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we'll do this again. Thank you very much. That is Francois Terrian from the Royal Terrell Museum down in Drummond. Let's bring in, uh, I'm going to call him Golden Eagle, because I can't pronounce his, his Cree name. Uh, you heard him yesterday. <laughs> is it all right if I call you Golden Eagle? Yeah, you, you can call me that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you can call me Marcel. Marcel, my calls, okay. My Fair mom enough. calls me a swap deal. Um, listen, 
uh, we got into it a bit yesterday, and we have a little more time today to discuss this. And, and I want to talk to you. Um, uh, you know, we were chatting last night, uh, Marcel, and you were telling me that you spent the day um, working with grandkids and kids of residential school survivors, uh, taking ceremonies and just talking about what was going on in Saskatchewan. Just just walk me through your day yesterday. How did that go? Well, um, I worked in group homes here in Alberta um, with Aboriginal kids for the last five years. And um, kids have aged out. They're working. Uh, one is working as a security guard. One one has her own place now, but and she's pregnant, but no supports. And and I still maintain contact with them, even though they've aged out and I've moved on from the group home. And so they want to stay in connected with uh, ceremony and mm-hmm. culture and learn about their history. And um, you had Chief Chief Billy Morin on this morning yep. talking about their culture camp. And that's where I went last night. Um, I go out to spend time with uh, their elders, Bob Cardinal, Rocky Morin, the community. Uh, they do really well, really good work out there. Um, uh, reconnecting their community and their children to the culture. And they're having a culture camp out there. And uh, I took this girl that I work with out there for a sweat lodge at a naming ceremony. And while we were there, we were um, we were sweating in the sweat lodge and praying with uh, residential school survivors, their grandchildren. Uh, the ceremony holder was a 60 scoop survivor who was kidnapped from the reserve, but taken into the States and, and given to uh, uh, a family, like literally like given to a family. Mm. And he didn't, uh, he didn't come back to his community for about 17, 18 years before he walked all the way from the States back to the North. He walked? He yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and so we're, 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 we're in ceremony with people that survived uh, Indian Residential School, and people that survived 60 Scoop, and were in ceremony with children that are 7, 8, 10, 9 years old, and, and they're reconnecting to their culture. They have a, they have a really good opportunity here uh, to learn their culture and to, and to um, instill some hope into these people that, that survived Indian Residential School, where their culture, their language was stripped away. I talked about it yesterday. Yeah. It was illegal it was illegal to be Indian in Canada in the United States. The kill the kill the Indian in a child mentality uh, started with Johnny McDonald, um, the governments from that day until today, right? We still take kids from their homes. We still take native kids from their homes and put them in resident in, into into group homes. We put them into um, foster care. We put them into all these places away from their homes. We still haven't learned to work with the family and the community um, to to heal, so that they can we can raise our own kids, right? We just keep taking kids away. Canada just keeps taking kids away, right? Yeah. Let me ask you. Let me let me let me ask you a question, please. Do you drink beer? Yes. When you drink beer, do you drink beer around your kids? Sure. Do you have a family barbecue and a picnic and you have a, a cold beer in front of the kids? Yep. See, we can't do that as Native people. If we had a beer if we had a beer, and a social worker could use that against us and say, we have a suspicion that you're drinking and take our kids. It's that simple. And, and no Canadian, no non-Aboriginal Canadian goes through that. 
Nobody no. comes to your home, Shay, and accuses you of drinking and takes your kids. No, like, you're even absolutely if they right. prove it or, or even, even if they prove it or not, they can take your kids just based on that. And that's the government policy has always been that way. We have to walk and talk a certain way in order to appease the government so that they don't take our kids, you know? And, uh, and um, it's really difficult to be Native sometimes. Yeah, I want to. I, I want to talk to you about. You know, we were chatting last night, and I, you know, and and there's a lot of people on the text line who are saying they're 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 really up in arms about the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church seems to be getting a lot of the focus of the anger, and I think the anger is is a natural response because you want to hold somebody accountable, right? I mean, I think that's the initial response. And we were talking about it yesterday, where you were saying. That's not going to get us anywhere. That anger isn't going to move us forward. There's a better way of doing this. And when we were talking last night, you said to me, you know, I was saying a lot of people want to help, want to make things better, but I don't think they know how. And you said, well, we know how. We've been doing it the whole time. So, so tell us, wh- how can we make it better? Well, we need to learn to respect each other. Uh, I, I told you a story yesterday in the text. I told you about how my dad, his name is Albert. His, his screen name is Exeno, which means old man. And his family and many families were forcibly removed from Wolf Lake. You know, they they hunted and, and farmed and, and lived on about 2,500 square kilometers of land. And now they have nothing. The government came in in, in 1938 or 39, forcibly removed them from their homes, and they ended up living in a ditch. For how long before they could find some place to go? They lived, okay, wait, uh, they lived in the ditch. Yeah, in the road allowance, it's called. And they had to live there while they tried to figure out where to go next. A bunch of families, and so they're stripped away from their land. They're stripped away from their home. The government goes in and and, and puts oil refineries and gas refineries and and, and CFP bombing range all in that area. So my dad has never been able to return home. My dad is one of the sovereigns. They've never taken treaty. They've never taken script, right? Mm-hmm. My dad is one of the few, and my mom are the few sovereigns that I know that still live off the land, that still hunt, gather, and and follow their traditions. They follow the Nehiawiwin, which is the native way of life, and to live off the land and respect the land. And that's what we're trying to, to teach and get back to. So we need to learn to respect we need to learn to respect my dad has every right to be upset. My dad has every right to be have hate and anger in his heart for what happened to his family. My parents, my grandparents, and anybody who's ever been in Indian residential school has every right to be angry, hurt, and upset. They have every right to mourn right now. They have every right to look for blame. But you know they don't. My parents keep telling us, respect people's life, respect people's way they pray, respect if they, if they go to church, respect that. They don't ha- you don't have to agree with it, but you have to respect it. As long as they have faith in their heart and believe in what they, how they pray, then let's respect that. The same goes for non-Aboriginal people. They need to respect our ways. That's what treaty was about. But somewhere along the line, people stopped respecting the agreement we made that Chief Moran talked about, the shaking of hands between the European people and the First Nations people. It used to be really good at some point. Yeah. But Um, we have to respect and move on. And so what we do, how we deal with things, 
is we have our prayers, we have our sweat lodges, our sun dances, our pipe ceremonies, our feasts. Everything we do starts with prayer. Even in business today, if we have a meeting, we start with prayer. Pipe ceremony, we start with prayer. Everything we do, sweat lodge, starts with prayer. We have a, a brand new baby that's born, we have a sweat lodge to celebrate. We lose a family member, they pass away, we have a sweat lodge in the prayer to honor their life. Everything we do starts with language, culture, and ceremony. And so when I told you yesterday, we know what we're doing when it comes to dealing with this, the, the grieving of, of these uh, 1,323 bodies now. We know what to do. So our nations have been going to these places. They're not discoveries. They're not discoveries. It's been going on for 150 yeah. years. Yeah. These are confirmations of what the residential school survivors talked about. Now, it takes a very big hole to bury 250 kids in Kamloops. You need a bulldozer to bury those bodies, right? So that's a mass grave. That's genocide. So we, our, our nations have been taking their elders, their youth, their spiritual people, their holy people to Kamloops. They go hold a pipe ceremony. They dance there. They feast there. They pray for these children. They pray for these children's families. They honor them. There's many tears. There's many hurts. And we have every right, but we know what we're doing. Right? And we're not waiting for government to tell us how we should do things or what we should do. You know, when Stephen Harper was government, he was asked to provide the technology and the finances to locate these graves. 1.5 million at that time, and he declined. The government declined. So this isn't new. The, the colonial government is not being friendly to the Native people. Um, right? so, so we need to find a way to work together. We've got to come to a, a solution. And anger is not going to be the way. Well, I think... See, well, let me see if I have this right. I agree with you 100%. Anger and, and blame and, and things like that, that's not going to move us forward. I think you mentioned respect and how you were taught to respect different people. Um, when, you, when we talk about the respect that the Indigenous people of Canada have been shown historically and continuing right up until right now, um, without that element of respect, Golden Eagle... How can we possibly, we say we want to help, we say we want to understand, but we can't, when you've been told your culture can't exist and is wrong and you're, you're less than human and all these sorts of things, that's the ultimate disrespect. Can that respect be built? How do we do that? How do we show that respect, that understanding and willingness to join you in this path? You, uh, you've heard of a man named Mahatma Gandhi? Of course. He has a very simple solution, and it's this. If you want your world to change, then you have to become that change, right? Yep. Well, uh, me, as a, as, a, as, a, as a child that was sexually abused by a person that went to residential school who was sexually abused himself, who was, whose perpetrator probably was sexually abused also. And it's a cycle that continues unless we do something about it. One of my elders tells me, I can... I can remain a victim, I can stay in the victim mentality, or I can make a choice and do something about it. I choose to do something about it, and it's hard work. It really is hard work. 
I have to reconcile what happened with me. I have to tell my parents. My kids know what happened with me. I haven't told my grandchildren. They're young. They're like six and under. But I share my story. I sh- I've talked in schools. I've talked, I've talked in ceremony. I've talked at funerals about what happened to me as a child. It's not easy to hear, especially for my parents or my family members, what happened to me or may have happened to them. But we have to make a choice to end the cycle of abuse, to end the cycle of disrespect. We can't continually wait for the settlers to live up to the treaty agreement and, 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 and uh, find it in their heart no. to, 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 uh, to uh, have their word. Shave. We used to be a people that had our, we, all we had was our word as human beings. Now we don't have our word anymore. You know, uh, we're not accountable to one another. We're not accountable to ourselves. And we need to get to, get to that place somehow. And we respect ourselves. If we respect ourselves, we'll respect others. If we love ourselves, we'll love others. You know, I'm, I have a, I'm very close with my siblings and my parents and my children my grandchildren. We're, we're very close-knit. We have problems like every other family. We have disagreements like every other family. But we also, our culture teaches us to be accountable. Our culture teaches us that we have to face the consequences of our decisions. Whereas in Western, Western society and Western law, you never have to be held accountable according to your laws that are written. Right? You can go say, I didn't do it, or uh, it's, I, didn't, I wasn't aware of it, and you never have to be held accountable. But our elders hold us to account. Our, elder, our elders, if we hurt somebody, put us in front of the people that we hurt, and we have to explain ourselves. Talking circles, healing circles, right? Yeah, and sharing and that experience. For, right? We've been doing this for thousands of years. Yeah, yeah. Regardless of, 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 uh, of uh, the colonial foot on our, 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 our necks, we've still been practicing our culture and, and resurrecting it living by the creator's laws which are simple truth love respect right yeah honor hey marcel I, I i'm i'm right out of time unfortunately we're gonna have to do this again because uh, um we need we need more of you we need more of your perspective and more of your voice thank you for taking the time this morning we'll do this again very soon okay Thank you, very, thank you very much. That is Marcel, uh, Ched Nation, and QR77 listeners uh, know him as Golden Eagle, um, and you love him. Uh, just so many positive texts. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.